monster or monstrous refers to diverse, unusual, frightening, wicked, ugly, or cruel creatures or persons. These words also refer to unusual or unnatural size or shape, such as a monstrous wave at sea. There may be, may be some overlap with unusual and exceptional events in, or persons, such as monstrous acts in wartime or extreme behaviors deviating from social norms. What creates a sense of awe may have overlap with the monstrous, and literature and cinema portray the monstrous being who shows a strong and humane side despite having unusual characteristics. Beauty and the Beast, Quasimodo, the Iron Giant. Joseph Campbell's work on mythology portrays the appearance of the unexpected and unusual creature or person who initially creates fear or surprise, but later emerges as a guide and mentor on a difficult path or journey. However, we may tend to polarize our assessments of people and messages when they convey a sense of threat, danger, or impending aggression. This runs deep in human communities, where diverse religious, cultural, political, or ethnic differences may stoke anxiety and stigma, and even, and even aggression. Dehumanizing persons or communities may set the stage for monstrous actions and tragedies, as seen in J Jim Crow rules of segregation and fascist mobilizations of ethnic oppression and cleansing, or media images such as those in Birth of a Nation. I am much concerned by the failures of successful dialogue on our communities, how, on how our communities, excuse me, may best maintain health and minimize the spread and toxicity of COVID-19. This is occurring even as we have seen the adverse impacts of demonization of our government, the minimization of medical knowledge and guidance, the portrayal of well-informed authorities such as Dr. Fauci as some sort of political monster. Anxiety and fear are the major triggers for polarization between us and them, between vaxxers and non-vaxxers. Unfortunately, as emotional and medical threats escalate, logic and compromise are some of the victims in our national dialogues. The great risks now are fear, defensiveness, and polarization, such that reflection and compromise are stifled. It is ironic that the Spanish flu of a century ago provoked um, research that found that um, social distancing and masks were preventive. So we have research dating back 100 years. What seems most damaging and perhaps monstrous is our current inability to find a consensus on how best to protect our collective well-being in the midst of the increasingly increasing polarization of community health versus individual rights to choose what is potentially cruel and threatening to others such as a refusal to mandate vaccinations or masks or to support safety measures for specific sites such as schools. We must calmly articulate what is most likely to maintain what we value and to enhance our physical health as a society while being champions of compromise and the best facts we can muster. Clearly, we can expect continued polarizations in our beliefs and the potential for demonizing or being demonized. Be calm, maintain dialogue, do your homework, and intentionally bridge gaps among our communities and our ethnicities. 
as well as maintaining respect for our differences. Even as difficult as these things may seem in the face of a persistent and escalating pandemic. You might already know this about me because I've shared it from the pulpit, or you might not, but I love Halloween. I love the spookiness, the costumes, the candy, the cobwebs, the monsters, which is weird because I hate to be scared. I really, really hate it. I get this visceral miserableness, visceral miserableness when I watch a horror movie. I have memories of going through a haunted house with friends when I was a teenager, clinging to the back of the person in front of me, hiding my face the entire time so I couldn't see anything, sobbing the whole time. I was a lot of fun in that haunted house. I don't subject myself to these tortures anymore because why bother? I get that it's fun for some people to feel scared, but not me. So what is up with my love of Halloween? I think Halloween provides a limited, controlled, safe space to dip my toes into the fears that I hold at bay most of the year. Skeletons and ghosts provide a chance to explore death from a safe distance. Ghouls and goblins allow us to play around with questions of good and evil. Cobwebs and spiders are an opportunity to come face to face with my own irrational arachnophobia. And then there is the communal aspect of Halloween. I love trick-or-treating. I participated in the tradition probably too long into my teen years. As an adult, I have loved being at the door to greet young and old alike with treats of all kinds, ooing and eyeing at their costumes. And now that I have young kids, watching them partake in that neighborhood fun is pure joy. It's the one holiday that has nothing to do with family or people you love. It's this collective agreement that we're all going to share our resources, candy, treats, with random strangers, children in our community. It's like a socialist's dream. <laughs> but truly, I think that is ultimately why I love Halloween so much. Because after the spooky comes the community. It's a chance to hold each other in this experience of our collective fears. And that is why this month, this October, we're celebrating our second ever Monster Month. We did this a few years ago. We're trying it again. And who knows, maybe it will become an annual thing. Each Sunday, we will explore different monster or set of monsters to help us uncover the fears and evils that we create as a society and the way we make monsters out of these things. Some of the monsters will be imaginary, some will be real, and all will be metaphors for something bigger and deeper going on in our minds and our hearts. And we will do this work of examining fears together. We will hold each other in the power and love of our community in the true spirit of Halloween. 
Today, I want to kick off Monster Month by exploring two monsters, Nessie and Bigfoot. Nessie is the sea monster that is said to reside in Loch Ness, a freshwater body of water in the Scotland Highlands. Some believe that she is a plesiosaur, a long-necked dinosaur that somehow evaded extinction, while others think that she is a one-of-a-kind monster. Despite scant evidence for her existence, people flock to Loch Ness annually to get a glimpse of this monster. On the other hand, Bigfoot is a land-dwelling mammal, a huge, huge, some say 10 to 15 feet tall, hairy, ape-like hominid creature that is said to roam the forests. Purported spottings of Bigfoot have occurred all around North America, with about one-third of claims originating in the Pacific Northwest. Claims of sightings can be traced back to Native American folklore. In fact, the word Sasquatch comes from the Halcomelum tribe of British Columbia. But the event that kicked off the modern search for Bigfoot was in 1958. It involved a logging crew in Humboldt County, California, where enormous footprints were found in the mud. Many years later, a member of that crew admitted he faked the prints himself. Ten years later, though, after that footprint incident, two rodeo men named Patterson and Gimlin took a short, grainy 18-millimeter film showing a huge, hairy creature walking upright across the woods in northwest, northwest California, and it led to Bigfoot mania. In researching this sermon, I explored both of these monsters at length, learning far more than I ever knew, far more than I really wanted to know about both of them, and asking, why is it that despite the lack of evidence, or even evidence to the contrary, do belief in these creatures still exist? Unlike Dracula or zombies, which hardly anyone would debate are real, Bigfoot and Nessie have huge followings of believers, hunters, even research organizations dedicated to finding and proving their existence. And this just made me go, huh. Especially now, at a time when social media and the internet have blurred the lines between information and disinformation, I wanted to ask the question, why? Why are people attracted to conspiracies? What makes them so hard to eliminate? And what does our faith offer us to be in community with people who believe and think things that are diametrically opposed to our own understanding of reality? In January 2021, this year, not long after the storming of the U.S. Capitol by a mob inspired by the QAnon conspiracy, and in the midst of a global pandemic being fueled by anti-science conspiracies, the American Psychological Association interviewed Dr. Karen Douglas, a social psychologist in Kent, the United Kingdom, about her research on why people believe in conspiracy theories. Among other things, Dr. Douglas said this, and it's a bit lengthy, so hang with me, quote, there are three types of motives that motivate people to believe in conspiracies. 
epistemic, existential, and social. Epistemic refers to the need for knowledge and certainty and the motive or desire to have information. When something major happens, when a big event happens, people naturally want to know why that happened. They want an explanation, they want to know the truth, and they want to feel certain of the truth. That's number one. Number two, existential motives refers to people's need to feel safe and secure in the world. When something happens, people don't like to feel powerless. They don't like to feel out of control. And so researching, reaching to conspiracy theories might allow people to feel that they have information that at least explains why they don't have control. Research has shown that people who feel powerless and disillusioned tend to gravitate more towards conspiracy theories. And the final set of motives we would call social motives. And these refer to people's desire to feel good about themselves. And one way of doing that is to feel that you have access to information that other people don't necessarily have. It makes you feel special. End quote. And so as we think about conspiracies this morning, I really don't want to just hold up a bunch of them so we can all dismiss them as bonkers. That's not helpful. In fact, that article that we heard earlier about the people who believe in Bigfoot and UFOs, it actually goes into further detail that I didn't share in the reading about um, partisan affiliation along with these beliefs. And in fact, folks who would vote Democrat tend to have far more beliefs that we would consider irrational than folks who would vote Republican. So I don't want us to all laugh and say, oh my gosh, that is so ridiculous. I can't believe that other people would believe this. All of us are prone to these beliefs, and it's not helpful for us to just dismiss them. So I want us to think about them today. There are very real ramifications for these beliefs. People are dying, and our hospitals are overrun because of anti-science conspiracies. People were murdered in the January 6 coup attempt, and countless people are facing federal charges because they were sucked into a conspiracy. Some ideas are more dangerous than others, but none of us are immune from believing things that are illogical. The article that we heard earlier about the results of the Chapman study on American fears stated that more people believe that our dreams can foretell the future than are confident that human activity is causing global warming. What is it that motivates these beliefs? Dr. Douglas's three motivations, epistemic, existential and social, or what I might simplify to call understanding, power, and self-esteem, help me make sense of all of this. Because isn't that ultimately what we all want? Understanding, power, and self-esteem? Number one, understanding. We want to feel like we understand the world, like we have the information. And right now, there is so much information. It's very hard to discern reputable sources from dangerous ones. I recently bought a few pairs of high-quality winter boots for my family. Getting ready for the winter here. I was so excited because I found them at a deep discount online. 
And then I realized the next day that it was a fraud. I had fallen for an online scam. I'm pretty knowledgeable about that kind of thing. I help fellowship members when they are not sure if what they're experiencing is a scam. But it was really hard to spot. I don't blame people for finding information that they think is coming from a reputable source, but isn't. And like in that Loch Ness article that we heard earlier, cognitive dissonance can be really hard. Once you decide that something is true or real, learning that it isn't can be painful. Not only did my realization that I had fallen for a fraud hurt my wallet, it hurt my pride. I'm supposed to be smarter and more savvy than that. When the stakes are even higher, the cognitive dissonance can be almost impossible to overcome. That is why we have people lying in intensive care units, dying of COVID, insisting that COVID doesn't exist. Cognitive dissonance can be really, really hard. We also want to feel like we have some control, especially in uncontrollable times. This pandemic has heightened that need to feel some control, and so people are taking very strong stands to the left and to the right, so much so that finding common ground is almost impossible. If you want to send your children to school, you hate teachers, right? So strong. Finally, we want to feel, people want to feel good about ourselves. We all want to believe that we are good and smart and special. And sometimes, especially in times of stress, the fastest route to that feeling is to believe that other people are the opposite. Bad, dumb, ordinary, sheep. In thinking about these fears and anxieties as monsters, Minister Allie and I were having a conversation, and we realized that conspiracies are, in some ways, misplaced monsters. There's a real fear, something true and scary. But in an effort to find truth, power, and self-esteem, those motivations, the real monster is traded for a different, maybe a made-up one. Maybe that misplaced monster feels less scary or more controllable somehow. In researching Bigfoot, I learned about a very recent documentary series that just aired in April on the streaming service Hulu. It's called Sasquatch. It's a true crime show that investigated some brutal murders that took place decades ago in a marijuana farming area in Northern California. People had come to believe that Sasquatch, Bigfoot, had perpetrated the murders. This is one example of my misplaced monster theory. Rather than acknowledging that re the real monsters, humans who killed undocumented immigrants over drugs, territory, and money, blame it on a mythical creature that no one can prove or disprove exists. Afraid of the direction our country is going? The monster is really an invisible cabal in control of the government. Afraid of the virus ravaging our nation? The monster is really the scientists. Recognizing that there's a real fear here, that real human motivations beneath that fear has led to a, cons a belief in the conspiracy, helps move us away from anger and division 
which can be the real monster that rises up in us when we're trying to think about these things. It can bring us instead toward empathy and connection. Because the more people feel isolated, ignored, and ridiculed, the more they will become entrenched in their need for those motivations, their commitment to their conspiracy beliefs. Our Unitarian Universalist faith, when practiced in daily life, that's the trick, practicing it, gives us tools to help make us less likely to fall prey to conspiracies. It can also help ground us in our values when we engage with those whose beliefs might stem from conspiracies. So going back to those three motivations explained by Dr. Douglas, first, knowledge and certainty. Our faith calls us to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The reason that we've been practicing the Wonder Box, and we will again, and that's actually, that's actually our Wonder Box. Isn't that cool? The reason we practice the Wonder Box is to help us remember that our faith begins from a stance of wonder, a stance of not knowing, of open-mindedness, developing a humility around knowledge, not always needing certainty, can help to ward off conspiracies. It can also help us be flexible in our thinking when we engage with those who are caught up in them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should be open-minded to dangerous conspiracies, but rather that we can have a stance of wondering why or how someone might believe what they do and approach with curiosity rather than hostility. Second, safety and power. Like with knowledge and certainty, our faith encourages a practice of letting go, of not clinging to the need to be in power or control. Unitarian Universalist congregations have historically, traditionally been filled with people with the majority of the power in our society. People with material resources, education, white privilege, social connections, and as we as a faith have begun to examine the role of that power in recent decades and intensely in recent years, we've come to realize that we need to give up some of that collective power in service to the good of our larger community. So this is a practice, a spiritual practice of giving up power, not clinging to it. But individually, it can still be a struggle for many of us. This is why grounding ourselves in spiritual practices that help us feel connected to the earth, to the universe, or to God can help us feel safe and can prepare us for the act of letting go of control and power, which makes it less likely to fall prey to conspiracies. We will be doing a series of services this year on spiritual practices, and so I hope that you will come and participate in those. And now third, that social motivation, the need for self-esteem and specialness. Our first principle affirms that each and every one of us has inherent worth and dignity. We are enough just as we are. Our congregations strive to help each person find community and connection wherever you are on your journey. The more that we practice this principle, and it is the one that needs the most practice, I promise. Easy, easy to say, hard to live. The more that we practice this principle, the more we are inoculated against conspiracies. 
We don't need to be more special than other people. We're special already. Similarly, holding that first principle in our hearts when we engage with those who believe in a conspiracy can help us connect with empathy so that we might be more likely to have a dialogue and make progress rather than just pushing that person away. I believe deeply, deeply that our Unitarian Universalist faith is life-giving and life-saving. I do not believe it is the only life-giving or life-saving faith. But I do believe that we have a gift in the values and practices that this tradition offers to us, but only if we use them. So it is my hope that these values of curiosity, openness, empathy, as practiced in our values, our principles, and sources, can help us to face the monsters out there, both real and imagined, as hard as it may be. And in the meantime, maybe Nessie really is out there after all. Amen. And may it be so.